my mic. I'm Mike. You can hear me. Good. Um, I thought I was just being so clever. And it looks like it's Hebrew, like it's backwards or something. I didn't figure out how they were going to staple because obviously it's the machine staples in the upper left-hand corner. I thought it would be so clever to put the thing in a landscape mode so that page three, you could actually have the passages of scripture that we're dealing with and you could have the checklist next to it all on one page. And you could see how that I didn't dream up that checklist that it's really there. It's just the promises. But in the process of that, especially with Newsbreak being what looks like on the front sort of, I'm not sure this is even remotely helpful to you today. So I'm very sorry, uh, but it was, uh, if it's got page numbers down at the bottom except for the front page, so maybe you can navigate through it if you can. Meanwhile, I'm remiss if I don't say not only Happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers here, but especially to my mom, who's generally seated right over there. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. I love you. So um, Happy Mother's Day to all. Yes. Um, okay. So we're Acts of the Holy Spirit is what we're calling this. And this is still part three because we weren't able to finish it last week. But I decided to add a little supplement. Meanwhile, on one day this week, I don't remember which, Neil Herman came by the house. And uh, Neil and Rosie are friends of mine and Becky's. Their daughters are friends of our daughters. And, And Neil came by and he said, hey, you remember Sunday when you said that, uh, by the way, if you don't know Neil, I'll put a picture of him up here. Do you remember uh, uh, Sunday when you said that the Hebrew and the Greek word uh, uh, was the same for spirit and for wind? And I said, yes, I do. He said, you never told us the words, though. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. He said it was all I could do not to stand up and shout, did they call the wind Mariah? And... That song is one, you know, it comes from the movie Paint Your Wagon. And uh, I don't know if you remember Paint Your Wagon or not. Um, It was one of my dad's favorites. And so that song got stuck in my head because of Neil. And I've had it there ever since. And I cannot get it out of my head. And if anybody has a solution for how to get a song unstuck from your head, I'm wide open and I'm looking for it. Thank you, Neil Herman. Thank you very much. I thought, what's Neil doing with this anyway? And then I started looking at that picture of a young Clint Eastwood and Neil Herman. And I thought, oh, maybe that's what's going on here. Oh. So anyway, Neil, they call the wind ruach in Hebrew. Say it with me. Ruach. Very good. And if they're going to speak in Greek, they call the wind pneuma. Pneuma. You're saying, who puts a P with an N? True, the Greek N looks like our V. Okay? But it's an N. The letter nu. All right? So, who puts a P with an N? Pneuma. Every doctor who spells pneumonia does. Because the pneumonia is the onia in your pneuma. You see? Let's break it down this way. Pneumonia, we start with ruach. Now, the word ruach in the Hebrew 
means a number of different things. It certainly means spirit, like uh, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. And in those situations, your translators will use a capital S to designate that it is the being, the person, the Holy Spirit of God. You'll see that in a passage like Genesis 1-2, where it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Ruach... The Spirit of God was hovering over the faces of the water, over the face of the waters. Now, you'll also see the word ruach used not when referencing God's Spirit, but when referencing the Spirit of man or even an evil spirit. And in those circumstances, it's not capitalized. You'll see this, for example, in Genesis 41, 8. So in the morning... His, Pharaoh's, spirit, ruach, same word, was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians in Egypt and all of its wise men. So you can see ruach, spirit, can reference God's spirit. It can reference the spirit of man. It is also used at times for the word wind. It's the same as the word wind. So you could say when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters in Genesis 1-2, you could say the wind of God hovered over the waters as well, in a sense. We'll see this in a passage like Exodus 10-13. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind, a ruach, upon the land. It's a wonderful word to be used for all of these different things, after all. You don't see the Spirit of God and you don't see the wind. You'll see evidence of the Spirit of God. You'll see evidence of the wind. But it's this, mis- it's this invisible force, if you will, acting. Now, what else do we have? We have it translated in the Old Testament as the word for breath. So your breath is also ruach. Look at Genesis 7.15 for this. They went into the ark with Noah. Two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath, the ruach of life, the spirit of life. So we see the Hebrew word ruach means not only spirit for God's spirit, human spirit, wind, breath. The same is true of the Greek word pneuma. So for pneuma... You'll see it, and I've given you passages in your handout that you can look at. It, by the way, pneuma is not the normal word for wind. You'll see it used for spirit. It's the normal word for spirit. Spirit of God, spirit of man. And it is a good word for wind, but more typically, the gospel writers would use animos, which is, is, is another Greek word for wind. Notwithstanding the fact, at times, the gospel writers will specifically select pneuma because Jesus is making a reference and a pun in his original language off of the wind. So he'll say, you don't know how the wind blows. You don't know how the spirit moves. And so there the gospel writers will use pneuma. Pneuma is used for breath as well. That's why pneumonia is a pneumonia of the breathing. It's the lungs. And that's what it comes from. So 
Um, um, we looked at, or I'm adding that because I failed to do it last week, and they call the wind Mariah, and I can't get it out of my head even while I'm teaching. You would think I'd be up here teaching with some, you know, Holy Spirit rain down on me song in my head, and instead of it's, they call the wind Mariah. Um, but I want to transition now to a couple of slides from last week because I want to plug us back in, pick up where we were, and keep moving. Last week we talked that the Holy Spirit is infinite, is personal, and is moral God. The Holy Spirit's not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. The Holy Spirit is not a he in the sense that he's a masculine uh, gender. The Holy Spirit is a he in the sense that he is a person. And we use a generic he for that. He's not a he. He's not a she. He's all-encompassing. I mean, we don't, we don't, you with me on that? All right, so the Holy Spirit, He, not it. And then we put up the chalkboard, and this is, depending upon how you read, this is page three of your lesson, is useful to look at in your handout. What I've done on page three is I've put the passages from John that we're using where Jesus spoke and promised the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught, said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Here's what the Holy Spirit will do. Boom, 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 boom. And there are five grouped passages, or four. I've, I've grouped them as four, but, it, but we, no, I grouped them as five. So five grouped passages for you to look at. And then I've pulled out from those 18 points off a checklist. And if you get really bored during the week, I added little lines so you can go back through these lessons and just check them off and see if Jesus doesn't do it exactly right. For our purposes in here, we'll do the checklist together this way. The Father will give the Holy Spirit. Jesus says something additional will be happening in some point in time from the time Jesus is speaking. The Holy Spirit will be a helper or a comforter, same word will be permanent. It's not just, hey, you get him for a day and then give him to someone else. He stays with you. He's the spirit of truth, unique to the believer. There's a unique experience the believer will have with the Holy Spirit that other people do not have. The Holy Spirit is something that the world doesn't see, the world doesn't know, and yet will indwell the apostles and the followers and the believers in Christ in a unique way. That's the passage where Jesus says he's with you right now, even though you don't realize it, because the Holy Spirit is in Jesus. But the Holy Spirit will be in you. And so Jesus says the Holy Spirit will be sent in his name, and the Holy Spirit will teach them the things they need to learn, as well as remind them the things that Jesus has said and done. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit, as Jesus is building to a crescendo in this teaching, the Holy Spirit will bear witness to Jesus. And not doing it alone, the Holy Spirit will also bear witness to Jesus with the apostles. The Holy Spirit will work through the apostles and through the people of God to teach Jesus and to bear witness to Jesus. Jesus makes it clear, none of this can happen until first Jesus dies is resurrected and ascends to heaven. That's what the Holy Spirit will be bearing witness to. 
And so Jesus then says, Jesus will be sending the Holy Spirit as well. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict people of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And he will guide them into the truth, speaking God's message and ultimately glorifying Christ. Now that's our checklist. And last week we went through passages that showed very clearly almost all of these. We showed the Holy Spirit being given by the Father at Pentecost. We show it permanent. It was not a temporary gift. We show it to be the spirit of truth. If you have any doubts of that, ask Ananias and Sapphira who tried to lie. The Holy Spirit unique to the believers. The Holy Spirit, something the world didn't see and know. But the Holy Spirit was indwelling the apostles, sent in Jesus' name, but teaching them tremendously. Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and proclaims this incredible sermon about Jesus. Stephen stands up and before he's stoned, walks through the entire Old Testament teaching about Jesus. Things they never understood before. You know, he's reminding them all the rest. Now, number two, a helper. Well, you can see that the Holy Spirit was helping or comforting, but we didn't really pull that one out very clearly last week. Nor did we pull out as clearly that the Holy Spirit was sent in Jesus' name, though he certainly was. The, The third one that we haven't pulled out as clearly is the Holy Spirit guiding the apostles into truth. You get it, but it's not as clear as as we might like. So I want you to look at those three red issues that we've still got, a helper sent in Jesus' name and guide into truth, as we continue to journey through the book of Acts and see if I can't show you where the Holy Spirit solidly does. Exactly what Jesus says. So, the Holy Spirit in Acts, if you're with me, again, this is uh, one we spend a little time over here with. Sorry about that, but it's the best way to show it to you. We are in Acts chapter 8. We're picking up with uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And so, this is what's happened. They've just had the conversion of the Samaritans. That's what we did last week with Simon. And as the Samaritans were converted... Uh, uh, it worked. It worked well for them. Uh, uh, it was a good thing when they were converted. Um, as the Samaritans were converted, we see circumstances that very clearly point out the way the Holy Spirit would work exactly as Jesus said. Now we move into the last part of Acts chapter eight: Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So here's the story: an angel of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? An angel, a messenger of the Lord, said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now this is a desert place. So Philip rose, he went. There was an Ethiopian eunuch who was a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. Um, He had come to Jerusalem to worship, probably Jewish, He was returning, seated in his chariot, and he's reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, at this point, it's the spirit, not a messenger, not an angel. 
The Spirit, capital S, Panuma. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip runs over to him. He hears him reading Isaiah the prophet. Clearly the man was reading out loud. Philip, do you understand what you're reading? The eunuch, how can I? Unless someone guides me. The Holy Spirit, one of our red letter, red numbers. We hadn't really had a clear example of the Holy Spirit guiding Jesus said he will guide you. This is a man who needs guidance. How can I understand Isaiah without someone to guide me? Hodegeo. Hodegeo is the exact same word Jesus, uh, John uses to, to translate Jesus' statement. The Holy Spirit will guide. He's saying, how can I if I don't have a guide? Well, he has one because the Spirit has sent Philip. And not only has the Spirit sent Philip, but the Spirit indwells in Philip and bears witness through Philip and teaches through Philip and does all of the things that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would do. So the man invites Philip to come sit with him. The passage of Scripture he's reading, this is it. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Now the eunuch says to Philip, Whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about? Is it about himself? Or is it about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture told him the good news about Jesus. The Holy Spirit guides, teaches, bears witness about Jesus. The promise that Jesus made is fulfilled so clearly in the actions of the Holy Spirit. And the eunuch becomes a believer. They're going along the road. They come to some water. The eunuch said, hey, here's water. Why can't I be baptized? What's to prevent me from being baptized? They commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. He baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more, but he went on his way rejoicing. So the spirit of the Lord's got another job for Philip. And he moves him on down the path. And it's a wonderful example of the Spirit guiding one of those red-numbered things that we didn't have so clearly before. If we continue to look, in the next chapter, we have Saul. Now, Saul, Paul, as we call him, by the way, um, Saul would have been Paul's Jewish name. As a Roman citizen, Paul also would have had three Roman names, first, middle, and last. Paul would have been Paul's Roman name, his first name. So some folks, some folks think that because Luke will call him Saul until he's converted and a little bit thereafter, that, that must have, God changed his name. No, 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 no. 
Saul's his Hebrew name. In all the Jewish stories, he's Saul. Once he starts becoming the apostle to the Gentiles, he goes by his Roman name. He's Paul. Okay? So Saul, we read Saul here in chapter 9, but think Paul, same guy, Jewish name, is still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. Now, is this because Saul is a Satanist? No. It's because Saul is a devout, zealous Pharisee Jew who says five times a day, God is one. And he thinks that Jesus was a lie and a charlatan and a fake and was being used to destroy the very faith of the fathers. Saul is vehemently out to destroy the church, the followers of Jesus. Not because he's an evil, wicked man, but because he's zealous for the Lord. And he's read his scriptures and he's studied them. And he's trained as a rabbi. And he knows that it's because Israel went astray and worshipped other gods that they were captured by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, that they were destroyed as a country. And he doesn't want that to happen again. And the idea that Jesus is God is just the kind of blasphemy in Saul's mind that will cause God to destroy the Jews. So Saul, in his devotion to Yahweh God, is set to destroy those who proclaim the deity of Jesus. It's important that we realize that Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord as we walk through this story. So we see in Acts that this is where he is, And he's on the road to Damascus, and Saul has papers to arrest the believers in Damascus. And on his way there, on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to him on the road. And Jesus says to him, falling to the ground, Paul, Saul, hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Saul says, who are you? Lord. Now, Lord there doesn't mean uh, uh, that he's granting divinity to Jesus. That same word Lord just means sir. Who are you? He said, I'm Jesus. Whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter this city. You'll be told what you're to do. Now the men who are traveling with him, they're speechless. They hear the voice, but they don't see anybody. Saul gets up from the ground, and even though his eyes are open, he's blind. So they lead him by the hand. They bring him into Damascus. For three days, he can't see anything, and he doesn't eat, and he doesn't drink. I'm sure he was thinking. 
All he's been told is, is he's been persecuting Jesus. And now he's blind. And Jesus is not happy about the whole thing, apparently. And he's been told just to wait, and he'll be told what to do. Three days. It's a long time to wait. It's how long Jesus was in the tomb. It's a holy number. Three days. Now, in Damascus was a believer named Ananias, a disciple of Jesus. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said, Rise, go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, isn't that an ironic name for the house where Saul's staying? And it was a common name, but it's still ironic. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. He's praying. He's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him so he might regain his sight. Well, how about his faith? Ananias says, Lord, I've heard a lot about this guy. He's bad news. He's done a lot of evil to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priest to bind everybody who calls on your name. Are we getting our signals right? And the Lord says, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will indwell you, Jesus had promised. He will teach you. He will convict you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And Ananias is there. He's the Lord Jesus. And he's been, Ananias has been sent by the Lord Jesus so that Paul not only can get his sight, but so that Paul can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Did he become a believer? The answer is in the next line. He rose and was baptized. And you know what else he did? This Saul, who at the start of the chapter, out of his devotion to God, is killing people that he thinks will rain down God's judgment on their blasphemy. Immediately proclaims Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He's the Son of God. Bam! 180. Bam! The Holy Spirit. Boom! 40 years of Paul's training. Boom! All of the... the, the, the everything in his body being, all of his experience, all of his education now makes sense as it testifies to Jesus, not as the blasphemy that he thought it was, the blasphemy that would destroy Israel. Now he sees Jesus as the answer to the curse.
He sees Jesus as the solution for Israel and not just Israel, but all of the Gentile world as well. The Holy Spirit. Wow. Wow. And you say, yeah, but it took him a while to really figure it out. Look at what else he says. Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving Jesus was the Christ. The Holy Spirit is at work. The Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter, remember, parakletos, comforter, Jesus said, God will send you another helper or another comforter. At the conclusion of this chapter, Saul goes back to Jerusalem and no longer being the persecuting Saul, Luke makes an interesting observation. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. Jesus said, God will send you another helper, another comforter. We talked last week about how that word, uh, maybe it was the week before last, but we talked about how, or the week before that even, but we talked about how the word paraclete, uh, parakletos is used there. Um, uh, it, it, it means a helper. It means a comforter. It means an advocate. It can mean a number of different things. What we need to know is this is a form of the same word, paraclesis, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That is, the, the Holy Spirit was doing exactly what Jesus said he would do. That's another one of our little numbered that we had read because we hadn't really nailed it last week. But it is there, and it's cleanly there. Okay, let's keep going. So, Saul's now been converted. Um, so now what do we have? We have the church in Jerusalem, and then the church grows and gets around Jerusalem in Judea, and then it grows into what used to be the northern kingdom, Samaria, and now it's growing even beyond that into Damascus, which is further, but still what we've got are Jews. Oh, don't get me wrong. We have Ethiopian Jews, but they're all Jewish. Until we get to Acts chapter 10. And in Acts chapter 10, we find a story. This is a coastal town, Caesarea. Caesarea is about 75 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Okay? So at Caesarea, and Dale Hearn wants me to say Caesarea. But at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion. He's a Roman soldier who's over a hundred troops of the Italian cohort. He's a devout man. He fears God with all of his household. He gives alms generously to the people. He prays continually. In the ninth hour of the day, he sees in a vision an angel of God that says to him, Cornelius. He stares in terror. Says what? Says your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So you send men to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging with a tanner, also named Simon, whose house is by the sea. So off he goes. Peter, meanwhile, has a dream. And in Peter's dream, 
there's a, a tablecloth that's laid down with all sorts of food items on it, clean and unclean food. And Peter's told in the dream, hey, come on, grab something, kill it and eat it. And Peter says, heaven, no, I don't eat unclean meat. I would never do something like that. But the voice comes a second time in the dream and says, kill it. If God made it, it's clean. And Peter's sitting there scratching his head. This happens three times, divine number. So Peter's scratching his head about it. Here's the way Luke writes it. While Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, these men sent by Cornelius stand at the gate and call out whether Simon, who's called Peter's there. Whoops. Sorry. Whether Simon called Peter is there. While Peter's pondering the vision, the Spirit said to them, Behold, these three men, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation because I've sent them. Now, we've been doing this enough in the book of Acts to have a pretty good clue of what's going to happen. If the Holy Spirit has sent them and the Holy Spirit's telling Peter to go, don't you figure Jesus is about to be proclaimed and the world's about to be convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and the Holy Spirit's going to come and dwell some people? And Jesus will be glorified? If you think that's what's going to happen, you're right. It happens. And uh, as it happens, you know, I'm sure there's this question of... uh, Okay, but these are Gentiles. This is a little dodgy. I mean, should they... I mean, do do they just get the Holy Spirit as Gentiles? Don't they have to, like, be Jews or something? So Peter's talking to them. They're believing what he's saying. And while Peter says this, the Holy Spirit falls on all who hear the word. And the Holy Spirit clearly is manifested. You see evidence of the Holy Spirit. Not just an inward conviction of their heart, which could have left Peter saying, well, yeah, you say you believe, but do you believe? You know, before we just baptize you into the church and accept you as full fellowship, you know, you got to have faith. How do we know you really believe? The Holy Spirit, and this is why, again, you don't build theology off of examples. Because you get these one-offs and you, you can't just say, hey, this is, you can't put the Holy Spirit in a box and say he only works this way. Okay, just caution. But you can see the problem. So the Holy Spirit falls and the believers are amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles. They're speaking in tongues. They're praising God for what Jesus has done. And that, that point, Peter's got no problem. He says, hey, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just like us? It's a no-brainer. The Holy Spirit's only indwelling them because they're convicted of their sin and the righteousness and the judgment because they've accepted Jesus. So it's kind of like, okay, yeah, they're in. Anybody want to raise a fuss over this? And Peter, when he goes back to Jerusalem, he he hustles back. He covers that 75 miles, I'll bet, pretty quick. 
Because the first thing he does is he goes back and he tells everybody what happened. And he's detailing it. And he says, hey, the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. And this Spirit's been at work. Look at what he says in the conclusion. He says, they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's a proclamation of Jesus. The repentance that leads to life. Now, we have other circumstances. We have Barnabas. You can read about him. We have Agabus. You can read about him. Um, we're going to run out of time, so I want to grab just a couple others that are really good. All right. We're doing it. It's 1147. I'm supposed to end five minutes early. Okay, listen. Let me do it this way. So Paul gets called to go on mission work. To teach about Jesus and to glorify Jesus and to witness to Jesus. Guess who Luke says called him to do it? The Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit's mission. And when people get in the way and evil gets in the way on the mission field, it's the Holy Spirit that deals with those people. Because nothing is to get in the way of Jesus Christ being glorified. And the Holy Spirit says... Even the Holy Spirit says to the church, you set aside Paul and Barnabas to go do the mission work. That's the work I, the Holy Spirit, have for them. Because the Holy Spirit's work is exactly what Jesus said it would be. To witness to Jesus. To glorify Jesus. Now, through all of this, there's a good bit of a fuss that develops among the church because they're trying to figure out you know, once you get the church out in the pagan circles, it's one thing to have the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit does not, in, the, the Holy Spirit works on making us holy, but it's a process. None of us, when we are saved, become, I, we're still in this fallen suit. We're still with a fallen nature. We still live in a fallen world. So we're not, we're not immediately perfect. We're declared righteous, but it's a process. So the church is faced with this question, what should we do? We've talked about it in here before, but it's Acts chapter 15 is the Jerusalem conference. That's what scholars call it. Because Paul comes back from the mission field. Barnabas comes back from the mission field. They meet with the elders. They meet with the apostles. They meet with the people of the church. And they have this massive question. Do Gentiles and pagans need to become Jews in order to be Christians? You're thinking Cornelius showed that not to be true, didn't he? Yes, that's part of their debate. Peter will chime in and say, hey... Remember Cornelius? But they debate it. And they say, well, yeah, but you, they can't just live like pagans. They've got to have some understanding. What do we need to tell them? Not to make them Christians, because they're Christians by faith alone. But what do we need to tell them to give them the guidance to live like it? So they debate. They talk. They thoroughly discuss it. Peter brings up Cornelius, and Peter reminds them that the Holy Spirit was given to them before they did anything, even baptized, which is a Jewish ceremony. So they decide, okay, here's what we're going to do. 
after much prayer and debate, the decision in Acts 15.22, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas. They sent Silas. And they sent with them the following letter. Now look at this letter. And remember, this came from debate, the study of Scripture, a discussion of the experiences of the church, and prayer. After those things, here's what the letter says. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. There's my daughter says, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your mind, even though we didn't give them the instructions. That did not come from us. It has seemed good to us having come to one accord. We have all come to agreement on this. To choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who've risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus. We therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. This next line is key. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. The church understood that through debate through discussion, through examination of experience, through study of the scriptures, through prayer, that the decision the church reached was the decision of the Holy Spirit. And that, maybe better than anything else, is a good example of how the Holy Spirit was seen to guide the church. As Jesus promised. So if we go back to the PowerPoint. Thank you guys. Uh, we don't have time for the map. But if you'll look back at these points that we had. The red ones. A helper. A comforter. We see that clearly. That same language in number two is used by Luke in Acts. To say that the Holy Spirit was there. Was comforting. Was helping the church as they had peace. Sent in Jesus' name. Over and over and over, the Holy Spirit, uh, 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 Ananias, uh, Agabus, uh, one of the A guys, goes and lays hands on Paul in the name of Jesus. Ananias, thank you. Ananias, right? Okay, that other guy was Ananias who lied with Sapphira. It's a mess. Anyway, you got it. Guide into truth, number 16. Not only do you have the Ethiopian eunuch using that same word, I don't have anybody to guide me. And the Spirit is the one who says, Philip, let's guide him. But you see it in Acts 15, acted out very clearly, the guidance of the church. And it shows you how the Holy Spirit was guiding in that circumstance. It's a marvelous, marvelous thing. And it's a wonderful way to look at the book of Acts and to start getting a feel for the storyline. When you look at it with the theme of how the Holy Spirit has worked through Acts to bring Jesus glorified to the nations. Points for home.
from last week, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. But now we know that mighty rushing wind is the same word as spirit, pneuma. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And that's where the Holy Spirit came, exactly as Jesus promised. That, my friends, is my trust. I've got no choice in this life but to trust God to keep his promises. Because if he doesn't, I have no reason to live. I mean, oh, yes, I love my wife. Oh, yes, I love my kids. Oh, yes, I love my family. But if there's no God or there's not a God who keeps his promises, then I can't trust that my wife's going to be okay and my kids are going to be okay and my mom's going to be okay and my sisters and their husbands and their kids, my nephews, my nieces. I can't trust that if there's no God to keep his promises. And even having wonderful family would just give me turmoil. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. If my trust is that God will keep his promises, my prayer is that I will be his instrument. See, we all want God to treat us like robots or puppets. Well, why doesn't God just tell me exactly what to do? Well, he's giving you a pretty good set of ideas anyway. Yes, but I need to know, am I supposed to turn left or turn right? God's not about making us into robots. God made us as people of choice and people of... of he gave you a mind for a reason. When you become a believer, you don't take your brain out and stick it on a shelf. I'm a believer now. I'm just going to, I'm sitting in the back seat and leaving all the driving to the chief. That was a song, a Christian song. And I mean, they probably meant good by it and it's got some good ideas. But no, we're not sitting in the back seat. We're sitting there with the chief and he's teaching us how to drive so that we can drive. And sometimes it's real frustrating because we can't understand what's going on and why it's going on that way. But the promise of God is, is that it is in his hands and it will. It will. And if we don't have that promise, we got nothing. But we've got that promise. And so his pray our prayer is to be his instrument. Teach us. And Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at a man who was with evil trying to impede the word of Christ. And Paul says, you son of the devil, you will be blind. Now you might be thinking, well, the Holy Spirit's not supposed to make people blind. Well, it made Paul blind, and it was the best thing that ever happened to him. He made Paul blind. <clears throat> it's the best thing that ever happened to him. But Paul uses the Holy Spirit to remove impediments because Paul understands it is the hand of God. It's the hand of God. So, yes, my trust is that God will keep his promises. My prayer is that I'll be his instrument. And my goal is to be used by him to further what he does. And those are my takeaways from this for myself. I hope you'll share some of those with me in your life. May God bless you. And I look forward to seeing you next week. Let's close with prayer. Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would work in us, that we would be your vessels, that we would 
gladly say, here am I, use me, take me, send me. Father, I know that the road is very, very, very difficult at different times in different ways for different people. I know a lot of people out here right now that are struggling trying to figure out what you are doing in their lives and in the lives of their families. And Lord, it is my prayer that as you reveal this and as you continue to work through them in the Holy Spirit, you will also give them that comfort of you as a God who keeps his promises. That you'll give them that help, that you'll give them that sustenance as we walk home to you. In Jesus we pray, amen. Thank you.